0: This is on script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. In the 2nd century AD, an elderly Christian bishop named Polycarp, who was hiding in a local home, was arrested for being a Christian. He was taken to the stadium, where the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, and respect your old age. The proconsul pleaded with Polycarp to change his mind about Christ and to exclaim, Away with the atheists! With his, Away with the atheists, it might surprise us to learn that the proconsul was referring to Christians, that he considered Christians atheists. Where did such an idea come from? In what other ways were early Christian beliefs perceived differently in their ancient contexts in comparison with their modern? And how has all this shaped our contemporary views of quote-unquote religion? Larry Hurtado is with us today to help us think through such matters. We'll be discussing his exciting new book, Destroyer of the Gods. As for Polycarp, he did not deny Christ, but remained faithful. He turned to the pagans who had crowded into the stadium, pointed at them, and shouted, Away with the atheists, before dying as a martyr. Now, Larry, welcome. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Where are you speaking with us from today?
1: Um, From my office in the University of Edinburgh.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited to have you as a guest. Now, Larry, we've corresponded professionally a couple times, uh, and I've heard you speak before, uh, but I've never met you personally, so I think we need a get-to-know-you question. Um, So here's a question that hopefully at least uh, will give us a window into your life a little bit. Uh, And uh, here's my question. Uh, what's a typical day look like in the life of Larry Hurtado?
1: Well, now that I'm uh, emeritus, uh, uh, retired, it's very different than it was. I uh, I don't have uh, any regular teaching responsibilities or marking responsibilities or committee or you know administration or as I refer to it administrivia responsibilities. Uh, pretty much uh, most days. From nine to five, I'm simply working on uh, research questions that I'm interested in, um, responding to requests for writing and publication and producing things. Um, I've still got about two or three uh, PhD students whom I'm finishing up with, and so periodically I meet with them and discuss their work or read some of their work. Um, I'm reading manuscripts for publishers and making comments on it or uh, grant applications occasionally, that sort of thing, but it's pretty much just devoted to my subject. As I say to people, I retired from my job but not from my subject.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty ideal, especially those of us who are still caught up in the administrative red tape of uh, of daily life in the university. No, I Uh,
1: recommend retirement very much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, you know, um, if you can move me along there uh, to that uh, process somehow, you know, uh, that would be great. Um, Now – I finished your, your book, Larry, uh, Destroyer of the Gods, a week or two ago. I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a really nice contribution. Congratulations on that. Um, and in fact, um, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, immediately was requesting my copy that I had received, uh, and, uh, uh, he had already heard about the book and was excited to get it too, uh, and, uh, he snatched away my hardcover that I had, uh, received. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a nice book and, uh, and I'm grateful for it. Um, so I wanted to hear a little bit more from you about how you first conceptualized, uh, this project or your book projects in general, um, what led you to this particular topic? How do you go about your process? Well, in most cases, um, it's, a, it's a kind of
1: combination of, um, of formulating questions um, and considering questions that I think are intriguing. Um, in a number of cases, they aren't new questions necessarily, but it's a combination of saying that's an interesting question and looking at what's been said about it and saying, to myself, in some cases, I'm not satisfied at the adequacy of the answers that have been given, or the persuasiveness of some of the answers that have been given. So I'm going to have a go at it myself. In this particular case, uh, it was a bit of both. Um, I, I I formulated the view some years back, actually, and th- this book I've been I've been planning since I um, since I retired in 2011, and it's only in the last couple of years that I've had the time to get to it. But uh, back then, even just before my retirement, I, I had come to the view that um, with great appreciation for the many studies that are coming out and have come out over the last few decades, emphasizing how very much early Christianity was a part of its Roman world and has to be understood in that setting and, and in historical terms, with which I totally agree. Uh, but I felt that there, there wasn't as much attention being given uh, to ways in which early Christianity was uh, dissonant, different um, and uh, and so there was perhaps unintentionally uh, on the part of scholars a bit of a, a distorted image coming over. Uh, along with that, I think there was in my mind the popular notion which uh, scholars have in some cases uh, even promoted, uh, but certainly the widely popular notion that what we call religion is a fixed category, pretty much a kind of obvious intuitive category of human life and is pretty much the same throughout all cultures, all religious people pretty much. Uh, have very similar views with minor variations, but their variations are unimportant and so on. And, uh, I, I think as a student of religion across various cultures and down through centuries, I know that to be <laughs> dead wrong. That the category that we use, religion, uh, is a basket in which we throw a whole lot of often in, uh, incommensurate things. And the differences among religions are sometimes, um, uh, more important, actually, than what they have in common, it seems to me more more historic, more historically significant. So that also motivated me to say, uh, judging as I did, that early Christianity had some distinctive features that were worth noting. I thought I want to write about that. When I got started going in the book, uh, as I got into it, uh, I started noticing that the features that I kind of uh, identified and wanted to discuss. Uh, One by one, as I considered them, I thought, you know what? It's interesting. Each of these has now become for us a kind of cultural commonplace. That is, it fits into the generalizations that we often make about religion. But actually, these commonplaces, these generalizations don't just drop from the atmosphere. They clearly come from um, this early period of Christianity. So those are my two points. One, a historical point. And one that I spend li- a bit less time on, but do try to inf- uh, do try to uh, to underscore a bit, is that uh, early Christianity had several distinctive features, and these distinctive features have become for us kind of unexamined cultural commonplaces.
0: Yeah, I have a couple follow up questions on that, but um, uh, first, I guess, um, do you think that these commonplaces about how we're understanding religion and whatnot are they? Uh, what is it that's reinforcing them uh, as ongoing? Uh, cultural artifacts in our society. What is it that keeps these ideas in place and sort of masks us from seeing uh the way that they're they're culturally con- conditioned or structured? Gosh, that would require
1: probably a
0: much more sophisticated modern historian
1: than I, but I'll throw out a few I'll throw out a few guesses on things. Um I think it's natural for people who are immersed in a given culture to presume that their culture is the natural thing that what their culture presents to them as, um, as beliefs or as truths or values are just intuitively true. They don't need to be examined. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much an error on, on, on our part to think that about these things. They, they come to us through our cultural heritage, uh, particularly the European and European-influenced cultural heritage in places like North America and elsewhere. Uh, it's part of our it's part of our heritage, and I think we're we're less inclined to examine things from our heritage or say to ourselves where the heck do these things come from, uh, and uh, they are widely shared uh, by people who don't necessarily. For example, a lot of the commonplaces that I talk about uh, are such as as I point out, you know, in in our setting, uh, even modern day atheists presume that there's only one god to deny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the notion of a kind of implicit monotheism that you either line yourself up with or dissent from, uh, but everybody sort of presumes we're talking about one God, right and there either is the God or there isn't. Um, but that's a bizarre notion in the history of the world and and in most of the world today it's still a very bizarre notion. But for us it seems well, does everybody think that? Answer Definitely not. So I think it's um, it's it's both the, the long term, Longevity of some of these things persisting across many generations that have caused us to, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. We, mm-hmm. we no longer uh, pay attention to where they come from. And the fact that, as I say, these particular commonplaces uh, are widely shared across people who otherwise differ from one another.
0: Uh, one of the things you at least touched on in the book but you didn't develop very much was uh, was the degree to which religious studies departments, uh, just by their very existence and uh, the way they do comparative religion uh, might be an agent that sort of you know continues this uh, this cultural assumption uh, about yeah, go ahead and yeah, speak th- to that sure Well yeah,
1: I, th- I think that's that's true. I mean, I don't think anybody sets out necessarily to <laughs> to to do that as such uh, it's is purely a a corollary. Um, a kind of unintended consequence in some way of the way in which universities are organized. You know, uh, as everybody knows in academia, the the organization of departments and departmental groups and so on is is a somewhat artificial enterprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... You know, I, when I was at the University of Manitoba in a department of religion, sometimes people would say, why do we have a department of religion? Why don't we just put some of you in sociology and some of you in psychology and some of you in philosophy? Because, you know, if sociology talks about religion. Psychology talks about religion. Philosophy talks about religion. say, so yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't do it in the way in which we do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we focus on it. For you, it's kind of background noise. For us, it's the focus of attention. So that's one difference. Um, but, yeah, we – but in the process then, when you put all of the people who study the various religions into one department, it can give the implicit um, message that not only these religions, but all of the things that we call religions are basically just variations like, you know, different colored suits or different flavors of ice cream. And um, uh, I don't know that we intend necessarily to say that, although some of our colleagues may want to hold that view. But uh, I would simply say I think that's, uh, that's a
0: fallacy. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to circle back, actually, to the first question that I asked you about, you know, how you first conceptualized your projects. And you mainly spoke to that in terms of, you know, the scholarly factors. And how about more specifically with this project, uh, with Destroyer of the Gods, were there any personal factors uh, beyond just scholarly ones that um, that, that drew you to the subject? Well, I take scholarship personally. So, I mean, not to be coy, but, I
1: mean, no, I, I really do mean it that that for me, uh, as, as I think is true with, with- – People generally who are involved in a given academic subject, uh, I take it very personally. That is, I'm I'm very interested in, I'm very keen on, very passionate about it, and um, I think uh, for me, it's I have a high personal investment in simply trying to understand um, the period that I focus in, earliest Christianity. Um, I'm guilty of being a Christian myself. Uh, But for me, the study of early Christianity isn't so much done to kind of reinforce my own beliefs, but just simply to inquire about my religious ancestors. And as is the true with, you know, if you study, you study your ancestors, of any kind, you have to be prepared for finding that some of them were outlaws, some of them were bad guys, some of them you wouldn't want to be associated with, some of them may have been admirable, and a great many of them were probably mixtures of both. And, and I think the same thing's true. You have to be prepared, you know, for me as a Christian, I think I have to be prepared to encounter the same kind of ambiguity uh, when it comes to the study of early Christianity. But it doesn't matter. I don't, I, don't, I don't feel any need to try to make early Christians all heroes or good guys. Some of them were pretty bad guys and some of them were many of them I'm sure were much more ambiguous the way we probably are in our values but it's just uh, i guess a kind of um, you know i find uh, almost anything about the origins of Christianity fascinating because uh, it seems to me that it is a quite remarkable historical phenomenon just considered in in, in those terms well, apart from whether you assent to its beliefs or not it's um it's really quite a quite a remarkable and of course highly influential historical phenomenon. So that that passion is is enough really in some respects uh, whatever whatever my findings I'm I'm driven by that kind of passion.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that as I, I knew you were a Christian um but I'll, also you you've chosen in your work very deliberately to work as a historian more than a theologian it would seem uh across your publishing c- career and I think that helps uh helps explain a little bit about why to me um which you know is a perfectly acceptable choice uh, other people make other choices but I think that uh, both both approaches yeah. are probably needed and they complement one another. Um I agree. Yeah. So um one of the things that I guess uh, that looms large in terms of the topic of your book uh, is uh, topics of diversity within early christianity and and um you know. I would say that we're in the midst of a tidal wave of of um, interest in diversity in early Christianity, as I think we're all uh, hopefully more aware today that the Gospel of John is not the same as, you know, the letter to the Romans is not the same as, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, a different theology, different kind of social world out of which they emerge. Um, but in the midst of that tendency to maybe to valorize diversity – um, it seems that there's some risk of, of perhaps scholarship overplaying its hand. Um, are there some places where you think it's most keenly overplaying its hand, and are there some points of unity that you think that we should, um, that we should also champion?
1: yeah I mean in one sense, you could say it's kind of ironic if if you uh, entertain the criticism that I gave earlier of um, the field of early Christian studies by saying that that um, in some respects uh, it may underplay the ways in which early Christianity was distinctive in the larger environment of the Roman world, ironically, one could say perhaps almost the the reverse is the case for at least some. Uh, scholarship on early Christianity that there is um, there is a, a tendency to play up the uh, diversity uh, in early Christianity and perhaps um, ignore or not do justice to ways in which uh, early Christianity in it in its diversity without denying that diversity also had certain overlapping and shared uh, things um, at least uh, versions of early Christianity you know at least we can talk about clusters of early christian diversity. Um, I mean for example the the the, the emerging new testament writings uh, that which which grow from sometime perhaps about uh, 100 AD on down through into the late 4th century before you have something like a kind of list of our 27 present new testament writings. But as the new testament grows across that period and writings come to form part of an emerging body of uh, writings that that are treated quasi as scripture um, there's diversity in those writings as you see the gospel of John The so-called synoptic Gospels differ. The synoptic Gospels have different emphases from one from another, as specialists in Matthew or specialists in Mark or Luke would would want to emphasize. Paul and James, good heavens, how do you put those two things together in the same collection? But it's interesting, the early Christians do. And the only thing I can say is that the New Testament, the, the emerging New Testament, bears witness to both the diversity of early Christianity and the readiness of at least significant clusters, of that diversity, to find common cause, to see in one another sufficient family resemblance to strike up a relationship, so to speak. And, and the New Testament, in some sense, bears witness to that. It, it's a it's um, uh, a collection that represents a significant ecumenical, so to speak, diversity in early Christianity. And that, that ecumenical attitude is there. Now, you also have versions of Christianity that, that are uh, quite uh, sectarian. Um and of course that's the original meaning of the word heresy is is a sect or a group that says, you know, our way or the highway. And there are versions of early Christianity that take that view, that refuse to recognize any diversity, anything other than itself. Some of the sort of elitist um and so called Gnostic versions of Christianity seem to me to be examples of this. But the emerging what seems to be in numerical terms, the emerging mainstream uh of Christian groups by the late second century certainly uh, seems to me to be that body of um, that cluster of different Christian groups that are represented broadly in the New Testament writings. They, they find common cause. I mean, they all, for example, a few things that I've identified in an earlier book that comprise what what other people with other people I refer to as proto orthodoxy um, or formative orthodoxy. And that is, you know, they they all, for example, treat what Christians came to call the Old Testament as scripture. Unlike say Marcionites and other versions, some other versions that reject the God of the Old Testament and reject the Old Testament, early Christians of uh, in the main, the emerging mainstream affirm the Old Testament as scripture, affirm the God of Genesis, the Creator God as the true and uh, high God, not an inferior God. They value uh, tradition they they are suspicious in some sense of innovation a bit and and value uh, tradition uh, beliefs and things that have been held for some time. Uh, there's an emerging appreciation of tradition in them. So there are certain things that, that hold them together. They, they insist also, for example, upon both the uh, the high kind of divine status of Jesus as worthy of worship and praise, but equally, uh, I think in, in the diversity we have in the New Testament uh, writings, uh, insist upon the reality of, his, of, of him being a human being, a mortal who could die and who could be killed just like any other human. So there are certain things that that it seems to me form a kind of overlapping um, center of some sort, like a Venn diagram with uh, different versions of Christianity, each having its distinctives, but f- clusters of them that have a sufficient overlap that they can make common cause with one mm. another. Uh,
0: I, I like that phrase you used in particular, talking about the New Testament as as a document that, well, as it emerged, uh, finally, uh, as having ecumenical diversity, uh, and uh, mm. that, that's a that's a nice turn, I think, and, uh, and a good way of putting it. Um, so, it, in your first chapter, uh, you explore how early Christians were perceived by non-Christians. So you're kind of focusing on the non-Christian response. You speak about Jewish responses on the one hand, but then you turn to pagan responses, uh, including Tacitus, Pliny, Galen, Lucian of Samosata, and then Origins Contra Kelsum and other things like that. Uh, I was wondering if you could walk us through a couple of your favorite examples, uh, especially maybe on the pagan responses. I think the Jewish responses are maybe a little more well-known, um, hmm. uh, are there a couple that stick out in your mind as being uh, particularly interesting, maybe Pliny or Lucian or whatever it might be?
1: It's hard to choose. They're also, they're also very interesting. I mean I think uh, in, in historical terms and from one standpoint, um, I find uh, Pliny, Pliny the Younger's uh, exchange with uh, Trajan, his letters back and forth with Trajan concerning the Christians who have been denounced to him uh, as, as, in his role as uh, Roman magistrate governor in, in uh, Bithynia – and Pontus, um, parts of modern uh, Turkey, uh, I, I find this exchange very interesting because it's, um, it's to my knowledge, uh, the earliest uh, report that we have of a Roman um, official, somebody in an official capacity, both commenting on Christianity and uh, indicating how he responded to them. And Pliny's letter exchange with Trajan takes us back to early second century, sometime between um, 113, 14, 15, and uh, and and so it's it's interesting what he says. He he says that he doesn't know of any, you know, there's nothing in the policy and procedures manual to tell him what to do about Christians, and yet he knows that he needs to do something about them. Uh, That tells us something, even though there isn't hasn't been any kind of legislation or formal policy document that's been issued to governors, he he believes, he knows that he must do something about this. And, and the action that he takes is interesting. He says, I demanded that these people conform uh, religiously, that they reverence the image uh, of the gods, that they uh, swear by the genius of the emperor, and interestingly, and that they curse Christ. So they not only have to affirm the Roman gods, they have to curse Christ, which is very interesting. And he says, and if they refuse to do this, I executed them. Um, unless they were Roman citizens, in which case he said, "I then bound them over and sent them to Rome for you to deal with them, O Emperor." Now you think to yourself, "Wait a minute! This is very interesting." This guy says, "I haven't been present at previous trials. Uh, I, I can't really find any direction on what to do on the matter, but I've kind of winged it." And here's what I've done. It's pretty damn decisive action that he's taken, you know, a pretty confident, bold action when you're putting people to death. So it's it's a remarkable early statement of. Um, uh of how roman at least that roman magistrate with uh, consent and, and uh, approval interestingly from the emperor uh subsequently how that particular roman magistrate at least uh is is dealing with christianity and what he says is very interesting because he says he uh, you know he may be exaggerating we don't know but he says that this Odious Christian message has not only gone into the cities, but has even penetrated out into the small villages. That it's uh, it's it's spreading like a social disease. Um, and and uh, he says, but but my very firm action, I'm quite sure, will rescue the situation. Um, the the now vacant temples will be frequented again, and uh, those who, who produce livestock and, and, and sacrificial offerings for them will again have their living restored. So he appears to say, unless he's exaggerating, he appears to say that the spread of Christianity has had very profound, not only religious impact, but very profound economic impact. Um, so I find that that a very interesting report. A lot is packed into that letter. Um, the other one, of course, that that um, that I guess I would pick out is the classic um, critique of Christianity, the full-scale critique that survives, uh, attributed to the Roman uh, orator and writer Celsus. Uh, written in the late second century. And there, because that one, he says, and, and it's quite clear that he did, that one rests upon a lot of research about Christianity, including reading early Christian texts. I mean, he's able to point out, for example, apparent contradictions among the the accounts in the Gospels. So he's actually gone through doing a good deal of of reading and research of Christian texts uh, for the purpose of mounting this, this critique. And, of course, it just drips with ridicule. Uh, so it's a wonderful um, reflection of how sophisticates, Roman sophisticates of the time, uh, fairly widely thought of, thought of Christianity. Um, as I point out in the book, one of the things that's interesting is that Celsus portrays Christianity as a religion of – um, women and children and slaves and ignoramuses, uh, and he says they would never dare to talk to anybody who has a head on their shoulders in any education. They, they scurry away like, like vermin um, and so on. And one of the things I point out is, well, if that were really the case, if the only people Christianity was converting was the insignificant people who had no power, no influence, no significance whatsoever – He wouldn't have invested so much effort in trying to refute it. The fact that he's invested so much effort, the fact that he's written this full-scale critique suggests to me that, in fact, early Christianity is beginning to recruit, in his eyes, the wrong kind of people. And I mean by that not – the vermin that he talks about but people probably up in more influential circles of society, people um, in, in higher echelons of Roman society and it's that that's got him worried because that's when a religion becomes dangerous down through history is when it starts moving up the social ladder and starts converting people who are, who, who are supposed to represent the establishment and, and instead they start taking on some radical new, uh, new uh, option.
0: Yeah, I think um your observations there uh, that, you know, Christianity was something that has penetrated the upper class, too, um, seems like it complements some other results that used to be assumed, you know, that, oh, well, the Christians were all lower class. But, you know, I think of Wayne Meeks First Urban Christians or mm-hmm. other books like that that have, have said, no, it seems like Christianity emerged, you know, in a way that uh, permeated all the social classes probably from the beginning or at least perhaps. Uh, it's hard to know uh, as our historical records are so spotty. Yes,
1: yeah, Meeks and of course uh, Edwin Judge and Mel Herby and people from the '70s who uh, who did some real pioneering work on on uh, social description of early Christianity all drew upon you know kind of prosopographical analysis of of the people who are mentioned and what is said about them in particularly Paul's letters and there you do have evidence yes of of people who seem to be small business people um, traders merchants doing translocal. Uh, mercantile transactions, so not simply slaves, not simply, um, you know, ignoramuses or uneducated people, but people who are, in Meeks's term, uh, he referred, I think, to, to them as, um, uh, in my own language, sort of uh, uh, upwardly socially aspiring people, people who uh, had acquired some money, some property, and who were interested in, in acquiring status. Um, it does seem as though, certainly in socioeconomic terms, that they included that. And more recently, uh, some of the people I point out in the book, uh, rec- more recently scholars have argued that, that although those were probably the majority, <clears throat> uh, you know, of, of the kinds of Christians, that is lower and those kind of socially aspiring classes, that there were also, it appears, um, people even in higher classes. By the, by the end of the second century, we have, Good indications, I think, that there are people in the equestrian classes, the sort of the knights of the Roman Roman era, uh, and perhaps even uh, the occasional person in the senatorial class who is beginning to dabble in Christianity. And as I say, I think it's that kind of development that probably causes Celsus to pull out all the stops in an attempt to put a stop to this thing.
0: Well, Larry, your second chapter is uh, A New Kind of Faith, and you framed a chapter by a discussion of the category of religion, uh, and uh, it seems like you're, you're dancing carefully around definitions of religion and wanting to, to tread lightly there. Um, what are some of the factors that make the category of, quote-unquote, religion then potentially misleading for modern Westerners as they approach Christian origins?
1: Well, as, um, and here I want to tip my hat to a, a, a very interesting book uh, that, uh, by Brent Nongbri. Uh, which I cite in the book. And, and what Nongbury has shown and other people as well, I think, prior to him, is that um, the, the, the term religion, as we use it, uh, tends to mean uh, a sort of discrete sphere of life. I mean, we talk about economics, politics, religion, uh, you know, music, whatever, as if these are all separate pastimes, quite distinguishable spheres of life. Um, religion is something you do in church or synagogue or mosque or in your private devotional practice politics is something you do then out in the public or whatever and we think of them as not being tightly connected at all uh, in the Roman world and in really ancient societies and indeed probably in, in tradition, very traditional societies to this day the gods so to speak or what we would call religion uh, is all in, inseparable from uh, the fabric of life from what we call politics or family or society or whatever. It's all woven together. There is um, there is no separate – there is no notion of a separate sphere of life called religion in the Roman world. So it's basically that that I'm trying to say we – if we go looking for religion as something that you can isolate, it's hard to find it in the Roman world. Everything is religious, you could say, and there is really no secular space. All family activities, social occasions, politics – all rest upon, all invoke the gods and uh, and involve uh, either quite explicit or strongly implicit reference to them. Um, and so that's the first thing we have to adjust ourselves to is to to um, look at religion playing a very different role than it does particularly in Western more secularized societies.
0: I want to kind of jump to a slightly different topic here, and this is something I guess that uh, I've been pondering a lot myself, and uh, you've obviously written a lot on in the past. But I wanted to, I, I don't know, to weigh, to have you weigh in a little bit on uh, on where you're at on this topic currently, and uh, that has to do with the way in which the Jesus movement is a novel mutation within ancient uh, the ancient Jewish tradition, uh, in the sense that we begin to see early Christian. Uh, early Christians who are firmly convinced that there is only one God, uh, nevertheless worshiping Jesus. Um, Now, Bauckham and many others who follow Richard Bauckham feel comfortable speaking of Jesus as, quote-unquote, within the divine identity uh, in discussing this matter. And I wonder, and I may be detecting you wrong here, but maybe I'm I'm detecting you correctly, that you seem a little bit reluctant to use this language. I myself have some reluctance, Um, and I was curious to hear if you would develop on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, um I, I've written uh, an essay recently in uh, a, a, a volume of essays honoring Richard Baucom called In the Fullness of Time. It just appeared. And uh, I'm one of the contributors and in it I, I take occasion to write what I intend is a, a very appreciative essay acknowledging uh, Baucom's influence and importance and in particular also influence of some of his early work uh, in shaping the research project that uh, I commenced uh, back in the um, in the uh, late 70s early 80s on the emergence of devotion to Jesus um, and I'm still very very much appreciative of that one of the things that I engage in that is his his more recent talk about Jesus being included within the divine identity um, I I I think I understand what he means by that most of the time at least and we have had some email exchanges in which I've tried to make sure am I am I really understanding you Richard and uh, and by and large I've got some affirmation from him saying yes yes and all that to say as I understand him his emphasis on divine identity is not what he calls an untick uh, category that is he he 's not talking about uh, particularly Jesus being included within the divine essence or being or whatever you know in to use the the later terms of of Nicaea, but instead he says god 's identity is primarily God is the creator of all things and the ruler and judge of all things that 's that 's primary in his view that 's primarily the way in which the God of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament, is, is really known. Okay. And then he says, now notice, in the New Testament, Jesus is programmatically included within both of those functions. He is the agent through whom God has made all things. Not, you know, as John says, Gospel of John, not one thing that was made was made without him. So he's, he's just as universal, so to speak, in his role as God is, and folded within that divine function. Of creation, and Richard says, and likewise, look, you know, the New Testament proclaims that um, that uh, future salvation and uh, and the kind of final judgment and so on that it that it um, portrays, Jesus will again be the one who executes this. He, he will be the agent through whom God does this. So he's again sort of included within this function uh, or role, uh, distinguishing role of God uh, as judge and redeemer and so on of all. So he says, we can include. You know, if, if that comprises the divine identity, Jesus is included within it. I don't have any problem with it as long as it's defined that way, if that's what you mean. Um, it's not always clear to me that that's what some people mean when they use the expression. And occasionally, I have to say it's not always clear to me that that's what Richard means. I mean, they, we have just had some recent exchanges on my blog site where he's used expression, can't we really say that Jesus is really and truly God? And I sort of pull back at that um that it, that it seems to me uh if you take it at its face value is with respect to richard uh, overly simplified um uh, because the, the new testament certainly and and the early christian writings um don't certainly in the in the first century writings in particular they they're very uh it is very rare to find jesus being called god or using you know theos type language um They, of of course, he is included within the discourse about God, as I point out in a little book I did in 2010. If you look at the way in which God is talked about, uh, or discourse about God in the New Testament, it seems to me that Jesus is constitutive. Uh, You cannot talk about God adequately without including him in the discourse. And likewise, you cannot worship God adequately without including him in, programmatically, within the pattern of worship practice. So he's constitutive of early Christian worship and constitutive of early Christian discourse about God. Um, to say Jesus is God as such is, it seems to me, implicitly to bring in what philosophers, I guess, would call ontological categories of being and essence and so on, which it seems to me only emerged somewhat later. Now that's not to say that 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 that's an illegitimate move. In terms of looking at where Christianity and its thought went or ought to go, that's a theological judgment. But I think it's it's running the risk of oversimplifying and potentially anachronistic to apply that language too freely to the New Testament writings.
0: Mm. Yeah, I do wonder um, a little bit as I th- think about uh, Bacham's project. If one can sever the functional and the ontological as neatly or tidally as he as he does, um, um, he sort of asserts one can. Uh, I do wonder. I do wonder if that needs to be probed more. Um, and certainly, as he sees, uh, I guess God's divine identity, or however you want to discuss this, as narratively constructed, as you mentioned, the idea of ruler and you know a judge and so on and so forth, a creator. Um, yeah, I do wonder also if we if we run into obstacles around language of agency. Um if agency is a precise enough tool to probe that to the degree we need to. Anyway, I I'm churning I'm churning my own mind around these topics a fair bit myself lately, so I appreciate I appreciate you you offering your thoughts. Um Jumping over to something uh, a little bit different here then, uh, in your third chapter, uh, you, t- you talk about, um, different kinds of, uh, I guess Christian constructions of identity. Uh, you discuss the, the imperial cult and a variety of other things. One things that, one of the things that grabbed my attention, uh, was, uh, your discussion about religious liberty. Uh, this was toward the end of the chapter. Um, and you mentioned that Tertullian actually was the first person really to introduce this idea, the idea that somehow or another uh, we should have religious freedom. Uh, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read the extract from Tertullian, uh, just uh, for the sake of the audience and for you to remind you of the, uh, of the quote here, uh, and then I have a question that's a follow-up on the basis of that, but um, here's from your page 103 then, uh, quoting Tertullian, It is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that everyone should worship according to one's own convictions. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion. A Christian is enemy to none, least of all to the emperor of Rome. Uh, who he knows to be appointed by God, and so cannot but love and honor, and whose well-being, moreover, the Christian must desire, with that of the empire over which he reigns. So here's my question. Um, regarding early Christian ideas of religious liberty, is there a lesson here, do you think, for the world? Um, what is it that, I guess, that uh, as we... As we t- kind of come to our contemporary situation and and religious liberty is prized here uh, and we're in a tense political season uh, both uh, in terms of, you know, over the pond with Brexit and whatnot uh, over here with Trump and Clinton being so widely disliked. Um, is there something that we should take away from this, I guess, for our contemporary scene? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I I think that, um, that in living as we are in professedly... Um, pluralized societies in which um, there is no official religion that uh, compels people to assent to it. Um, there is instead religious liberty, uh, modern democracy such as the United States, Canada, Britain, and, and others. Uh, living in societies as we are like this, um, I would say I, I think that um, that early Christianity, Tertullian and other writings, uh, I think give Christians in particular – uh, their own resources uh, and basis for affirming these kinds of societies. I mean, there's a sense in which I sometimes get the impression that some Christians recoil against the um, the pluralization uh, of society and and recoil against um, you know the diminution of Christianity as the official or quasi official religion. You know, in in Britain, of course, in uh, in England, the Church of England. Uh, it has, it remains constitutionally sort of, you know, the official religion of England, although of course it, um, it, uh, the, the government and, and the current operation makes room for plurality of religious options. In the United States you don't have an official religion. Uh, Full religious liberty is supposed to be guaranteed. Uh, There are, however, you know, very often strident Christian voices who say, yeah, but this is a Christian nation, damn it. And, you know, uh, so by George, you know, they've taken the nativity scene off the county square. This is an outrage. Or, you know, students aren't praying the Lord's Prayer in school anymore. Oh, we're all going to hell. Um, And it seems to me that that's a totally misguided response. First of all, it's totally historically cockeyed because Jefferson and the founding fathers set up the United States – and I say this as somebody who still has his American passport, so I have the right to say so. Jefferson and the founding fathers set up the United States to be a a, – Uh, A society in which there was no official religion and in which people had freedom of conscience and freedom of religious diversity. The second thing to say is that it's totally misguided from a Christian standpoint to try to seek some sort of uh, hegemony, religious hegemony. Um, Instead, Christians, it seems to me, ought to be based on their on their early stage of of writers such as the New Testament, Tertullian, ought to be at the forefront of people who are arguing for full religious liberty, full freedom of conscience, and religious diversity. Um, What Tertullian means when he says that this is natural and that Christianity cannot be compelled, of course, is it seems to me that he's alluding to the well-known emphasis from the New Testament onward that uh, in Christian terms, the only way you can be related to God – you know, salvifically and and meaningfully, is through the act of faith, which God may prompt, but which it is up to the individual to respond to and to exercise. And for there to be faith, that is an uncompelled, freely offered faith that is responding to nothing but God's prompting, requires a public space and a social space in which there is absolutely as little religious compulsion one way or the other as possible. Because insofar as assent to Christian faith is compelled, it is inauthentic faith. It is inauthentic assent. And in the theological interest of of securing a space in which authentic Christian faith can be uh, expressed, it, I think, perforce requires uh, a situation in which there is maximum religious liberty. Mm
0: yeah it, it seems like that uh uh instead of compulsion we need to have persuasion uh and that's uh, absolutely that, that's yes
1: a- uh, i mean, i think that as 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 in the political arena we have you know the the political parties contend with one another but no one party has you know the the de jure right to rule over the others i mean the, 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 if if a political party wins the election it it has the right to serve uh, and to lead the country or the city or whatever for that term of office until the next election but there's no you know you aren't el presidente for life you know you you, you have to seek the consent of the governed and and so religious uh, so political parties contend with each other they disagree uh, and so on and it seems to me that that when I say religious diversity I want to allow for the opportunity for religions to contend with each other as well. There are those voices uh, who would want to say you know oh no we want we don't want to have religious conversion. Well, I want to have an opportunity when people can convert and can change their mind. And that means converting in almost any direction. Yes, it does mean a situation in which a person who is uh, once a Christian or brought up a Christian may choose to become a Buddhist or whatever. Uh, I I would want to – maybe as a Christian, I'd want to reason with them about that choice. But I want to ensure that they have that choice. They have that opportunity.
0: Larry, time is flying by here and I don't want to keep you too long so I want to I'm going to lump, actually I was going to ask you separate questions about chapters 4 and 5 but uh, I think I'm going to lump them here um, and and just give you the freedom to talk about uh, whatever you would wish to talk about with regard to that. Well, Chapter 4 had to do with the degree to which uh, religion is bookish uh, or excuse me, the, the Christian tradition was uniquely bookish uh, and then uh, the 5th chapter really with Christian ethics, a new way to live. Um, and uh, is there anything in particular that you'd like to share? I, I, I enjoyed your material on Christianity's bookishness a lot. Uh, Is there anything that you find that you particularly enjoy sharing with others about uh, the oddities of Christianity's bookishness?
1: Well, let me give an illustration. One of the things I think I I mentioned in the book uh, is uh, there's a recent study, for example, of um, of uh, a, a cult known as the Jupiter-Dolacanus cult, which was a, a very successful, rapidly spreading new cult uh, that appeared uh, roughly contemporary with early Christianity. And in the first two or three centuries, it's, it spread quite widely. And you can trace it and you can see its success. You can study uh, the kind of people who were part of it and so on uh, because there are shrines uh, that are built. Uh, wherever the Dolacanus cult spread, there are sh- physical shrines that are built. And so archaeologists have... Have discovered them and can analyze them. And from the donation inscriptions, that is, they, they often have inscriptions where it will say that the following shrine was paid for by so and so and so and so and so and so and so. And so you can tell who they were, their names, and something often of their social rank. So it becomes clear, for example, that the cult of Jupiter Dolicanus was a, a very popular cult, it appears, among the officer corps of the Roman army. Um, but the interesting thing is, we do not have a single text from them. I mean, other than these donation inscriptions, not a single text, exactly what they believed, exactly what their rituals were, exactly what kind of lifestyle they promoted, only God knows. We have no notion. In the case of early Christianity, in the same period, in the uh, first two or three centuries, we have virtually no physical, in the ordinary sense of the word, no physical archaeological remains. I mean by that, you know, shrines or temples or altars or images, none of that. Instead... However, we have this phenomenally huge body of texts that are produced by Christians in this period for such a small group. As I mentioned in the book, by by one count, one catalog of early Christian texts that I consulted and trolled through, by about 250 A.D., we have well over 200 Christian writings that we know about. And there probably were many more that we don't know about at all. Uh, I don't know of anything comparable Christians were producing texts maniacally in comparison to practically any other group in antiquity. And the same kind of comparison can be made with Mithraism or with Isis worship or with any of the traditional gods. The so-called mystery cults are partly called mystery because we don't know bloody much about what they did. We don't know much about them. And the reason is because they didn't write, they didn't write texts. We know far more about early Christianity, its beliefs, its ethos, its practices, and so on. Far more about early Christianity, I would say, than any other religious movement in the Roman world. And that, that's just phenomenally uh, – and it's basically because early Christianity was so given to composing, copying, and distributing texts. The other thing, uh, early Christian behavior, um, the point that – I guess the, the major point I would want to make there is is that uh, there are – Observable similarities between uh, some of the values that early Christians uh, uh, promote, uh, the, the notion, for example, that uh, a husband should be chaste to his wife just as a wife is expected to be uh, chaste to her husband, uh, that's a sort of view that someone like, say, Musonius Rufus uh, held as well, a Stoic philosopher of the time. So it isn't as though the ideas, the the behavioral ideas or teachings of Christianity are all categorically new. There is a certain amount of overlap, particularly with the kind of Stoic tradition of the time. But the crucial difference, it seems to me, in historical terms is this. The, the Stoic philosophers of the time gathered about them little circles of disciples and put them through the demanding and prolonged training necessary to learn how to think like a Stoic because thinking like a Stoic, let's face it, is not an, an intuitive way of living or thinking. You have to really rewire your brain to operate like a Stoic uh, and to practice these kinds of, uh, of values. But they, there's no indication that they intended or had much of a large-scale effect upon changing the values of, uh, of people at large. Early Christianity, however, is from the beginning a, an aggressively propagandizing, uh, evangelistic, depending on the term you want to use, movement that is proclaiming its values and its message through the masses, out into the streets. And from the point of baptism onward is expecting this kind, these kinds of behavioral norms uh, to be observed by their followers. However uh, successfully they did or didn't, that's the aim and the interest. So considered as a social project, I think there's no comparison between early Christianity and the Cynic Stoic philosophers. Um, and the other the other by the way, the other sidelight is one of the things i was I was very intrigued to find in the course of doing the research for that is these studies by uh, my Canadian colleague John Martins, who has identified um, in one particular area, for example uh, pederasty, which is widely practiced in the roman world and and what John has shown is um, is how in early Christian texts, it appears that you have Christians inventing a new kind of terminology by which to refer to pederasty, which uh, terminology that is intended to convey their utter disapproval of it. So instead of the word, for example, pederestes, that is literally a child lover or boy lover in the sexual sense of the word, Christians referred to the person doing this as a pedophthoros, a child corrupter or a child destroyer. And they use a verb form of that to describe instead of pederasteo to, to uh, you know, child love or boy love, they refer to it as child corruption. So interesting how they, they don't just condemn it. They actually invent a new vocabulary to express their condemnation of it. Really quite
0: interesting, artifact, you might say, linguistic artifacts of early Christianity. Thanks for sharing that. And I I think kind of as a follow-up to that, if we today then find, you know, abhorrent certain practices that we just assume are abhorrent, like pederasty and like the exposure of infants, um, I think that one of the things your book does show is um, the, the large degree to which our culture has inherited this from the Christian tradition. Um, all right, taking you on to, uh, I have to make sure I get this in somewhere as this is a, a question that we're, uh, we're asking all of our, um, all of our on script guests. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, it's a, it's sort of our big idea question that I wanted to make sure we got to. And here it is. So, are you ready for this? Okay. All right. So, what's one idea in New Testament studies that needs to die? One idea that needs to die. Oh, goodness. Um, Gosh, I—that—that's—I'll
1: I, uh, have to say that's a creative question. I suppose that I would come back to one of the things that that I I uh, mentioned earlier, and that would be—I uh, I don't know that it's a widely held idea, but I think it is sufficiently widely held to identify it, and that is the notion that early Christianity um, is this kind of um, uh, uh, radically diverse. Set of, you know, one, one scholar I think, for example, has described it as a, a bunch of independent experiments that developed, uh, and then gradually found, uh, found themselves forming a thing they came to call Christianity. Um, I just don't think that there's any analogy for that in the history of world religions. And it certainly doesn't ma- match up to what goes on in early Christianity. I think instead, um, early Christianity is certainly Uh, has a certain uh, amount of diversity but also there is a kind of um, historical rootage to it and that rootage includes I think the emphasis um, uh, and the impact of the ministry of Jesus as well as uh, subsequent uh, powerful religious experiences.
0: Yeah, well, it's hard to think of a, a version, for instance, of early Christianity where uh, the cross isn't central. I mean, some people have argued that, you know, we might have, you know, Q documents or things where it wasn't, or but those are hypothetical documents, right? We don't really know of any. Um, so there does seem to be something uh, common there, and that I, th- I think you're right, that uh, uh, sort of wild ideas of diversity, uh, we need to recover an appropriate diversity, right? But wild ideas about diversity uh, maybe need to be curbed.
1: Well, I think that uh, I, I don't – I I think what you mean, what, what I would certainly want to emphasize by, by the only curb I would put on uh, scholarly uh, development is that uh, is is the curb of the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep thinking, you know, we, we 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 need to come back to the data. And that, is not, and that includes not only the direct data of, of the texts and the evidence of early Christianity, but also I think we're free to employ for corroboration purposes or for heuristic purposes analogous phenomena in in other cultures and other settings and other new religious movements. Uh, but putting all that together, I think um, the only curb I would put is that, um, is that s- speculations or proposals should be uh, answerable to the relevant data. And um, speculation that that can't, that seems to engage in it just for its own sake and doesn't seem to stand up to the data test, it seems to me, um, it can quite deservedly be scotched.
0: Well, Larry in this book you've articulated and very cogently I think the degree to which our contemporary views of religion you know are indebted to Christianity uh, and all of this is undoubtedly useful for the world and I think that um, a large part of your audience is certainly intended to go beyond uh, practicing Christians um, but I do wonder if you have a specific word for practicing Christians they'll form will certainly form a large part of your audience um, is there anything that speaks uniquely do you think uh, or that you would hope speaks uniquely to practicing Christians maybe for apologetics or ethics or Preaching uh, from your book.
1: Well, uh, not directly, maybe, but I guess I, I, I would uh, I would want for Christians to read the book. Modern Christians, particularly, sort of you know people who aren't specialists in early Christianity, just got sort of wider public to read the book. And I guess the the overall thing I would want to say is uh, I think the book <laughs> and the phenomena that it talks about are worth your time because it will introduce you to the roots of the faith that you, you may not know. It will – as I say, it's like finding out on a more grand scale where your people come from or your family comes from or what gives you your particular kind of um, identity. And, uh, and I think that uh, – the other thing I would say is that as we move into a um, more and more post-Christendom world – Uh, in which Christianity is once again one competing option among others, I think it's the documents and the people and the developments of the first two or three centuries that are actually the most valuable resources for learning how to live by your wits, again, as Christians in a world where you don't exercise hegemony, but you have to live by your ability to commend your faith to the consciences of people.
0: Larry, that's a, a passionate and I think very fitting final reflection for us. So I want to thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Yeah, uh, it was really marvelous. Glad you too. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, I want to thank our listeners too for helping to make the show a success. Uh, this is Matthew Bates for OnScript. Our guest today has been Larry Hurtado. We've been discussing his new book, "Destroyer of the Gods," published by Baylor University Press. Our website has more information about the book and a link for purchasing. We definitely recommend it. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to OnScript, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.